This message by Jake Simmons was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Jake serves as a pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. Turn in your Bible to John chapter 17. We're going to start there. John chapter 17. This morning, I'll be preaching the last message of a current series we've been in for the last few weeks. We've titled, Satisfied in Christ, Conquering Worldliness in the Power of the Spirit. And in the first two messages, Bill Kittrell, our senior pastor, helpfully gave us guardrails on, on how to navigate this, world's, this world biblically and to create the category of worldliness, but then also to give us discernment on how we can enjoy this world in a way that pleases God. Last week, Zach helpfully walked us through Romans 12 and, and applied these principles to what it looks like to glorify God with our minds and with media and music. So when we think about worldliness, I think this is where our minds can tend to go. Materialism, possessions, media, music, social media. These are all good categories for us to, to think about. But, but this morning, I want us to think about something else. What do we, as Christians, have to offer this world? What do we, as Christians... What do we as Christians have to offer this world? As Kevin prayed this week, our nation was confronted once again with the evil that still exists in our world. When you heard about the tragic shooting in Buffalo on May 14th that resulted in 10 people being killed, followed by the school shooting at Robb Elementary and the lives of 19 children and two teachers murdered, what was your response? How did you respond initially? Anger, grief, sadness. Another question, where does one turn for hope in the face of such evil? When events like these occur, we're faced with this reality that there is an inescapable evil and wickedness that exists in our world. We cannot escape this reality. We look at the world and society and we realize this is not how things were meant to be. There is something in us that just says, this is not right. So what do we do? The question remains, where do we turn? If you look at the news and social media feeds, it appears the immediate solution is political. But is that really the solution to answer the evil that exists in the world? I'm not saying that these solutions are unfounded, unneeded, nor irrelevant. But these, these solutions have limits. They can restrain evil, but how do they answer why? How do they answer what do we do with this evil? As Christians, we can't let the world determine how we ought to respond to evil in this world. We must not turn first to legislation, but we must first turn to the Lord. D.A. Cap Carson captures this well. He says this, If God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, He would have sent an, an economist. If He had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, He would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, He would have sent us a politician. If He had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor, 
But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death, and he sent us a Savior. That is what we have to offer this world. That is what we have. That is the hope that we never want to turn from that we never want to be ashamed of. We have the hope of the world. In the face of great evil, we can look evil in the face and say we have a solution. We know where justice can be found. We know where mercy can be found. We know where forgiveness can be found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is truly the only hope of this world. He is the one who came to conquer sin and death. He is the one that creation groans for. He is the one that we groan for, that we long for. Romans 12 says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to turn our attention to Jesus in John 17. And I want us to see on the eve of his own betrayal, on the eve of his own crucifixion, what does Jesus do? But he prays. So join me as I read a part of this prayer in John 17, beginning in verse 14. I, Jesus, have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So this morning, may Jesus' prayer give us his heart for us as we seek to live in this world. If, if I could capture what I'm going to try to share this morning and encourage us with, I would say this, we want to be a church, a people that faithfully brings the gospel to a world that desperately needs it. Faithfully bring the gospel to a world that desperately needs it. In John 17, what we see in Jesus' final time of extended prayer before being crucified is he prays. He not only prays for himself, but think of this, he prays for us. He prays for you. So this morning, I want us to consider not only Jesus' prayer that he would be sent, but also what does it mean that he is sending us? Three points. First, not of, but sent into the world. Not of, but sent into the world. John 17 concludes what has been called Jesus' final discourse. This begins back in John 13. These chapters contain Jesus' final teaching, instruction before his arrest and crucifixion. And we've said this a number of times throughout this series, and 
And it's something that is correct and accurate to say, but, I, but what I want to do is I want to add something to it. We've said that as Christians, we want to be in the world, but not of the world. We want to be in the world, but not of the world. And, and I do agree with that, and I think it captures well what Jesus prays in John 17, verse 15. He says, I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Yet it doesn't, I don't think this in the world, but not of the world, it fully captures what Jesus intends for us. I think what, what, what Jesus is, is, is praying and hoping here is that, that we wouldn't just be in the world, and then we're just kind of detached from the world. So be in the world, not of the world. Okay, what am I supposed to do in this world? Am I supposed to pull away from the world? Is the world bad and I'm detached from it? No. Jesus' prayer is so informative for us. He, he, he says that in keeping us in this world, there is a purpose. He has a good and glorious purpose for his people. And so in his prayer, he says, this is why I've kept them in the world, to send them out into the world, to deploy my people with my good news, with my message of salvation, to send them into the world. So we're not of the world, but we are sent where? Into the world. The best defense is a good offense. And so Jesus is saying, hey, don't, we're not going to fall back on our heels and try to keep the world from us. We're actually going to lean forward. And we're going to lean forward into the world. We're, we have a message to proclaim. Jesus said that he was going to build his church. And here's the good news. We have the best thing in this world. What we have in Christ is just better. It is just better. The world, what the world has and what the world offers, it pales in comparison to what we have in Christ. And so as Jesus sends us, it should embolden us that the Savior himself, think about this, Jesus prayed for you. And what did he pray? He prayed that you would be sent into this world, that you would be go forth and that you would proclaim His name. That the world would not be the greatest influence among us, but that He, Christ, and His, His Word would dwell in us richly and that we would go into this world testifying humbly and lovingly the good news of Jesus Christ. I had a friend recently share about taking his family out in their um, boat on the lake, and it's first time, just had to dewinterize, very excited about it. They're out in the water having a great time, and he just said that he kept hearing this bilge pump. He kept hearing this pump come on, and this, this pump should not have been on. This is a pump that gets water out, pumps water out. It, it, just, it just kept coming on over and over, and he thought, oh, it was just probably an issue, you know, probably just messing up, not a problem, but it just kept happening, and so he eventually went to look at it and to see what was going on. And so he lifts, he lifts the seat up, looks underneath, and then there is just water pouring into their boat. Underneath, no idea this is happening. It, I mean, we're not just talking like a little drip. We're talking it is pouring into this boat. One of the hoses that is connected to the engine had come off. And all the water that was supposed to keep the engine cool is now pouring into their boat, filling it up. Now, this, in this moment, it's not just, oh, that's okay, we'll go. It's like this boat could sink. This boat could go down into the water. So they're trying to fix it. 
They're trying to get this wire back on. Eventually they get it. They put the screwdriver in to hold it. They're driving back. They make it back to safety. And then he, he began to send me these reports of people. They weren't able, they like barely made it back. Or some of them, it just, the boat sunk. And it just destroyed the boat. The point of that is boats are made to live in the water. But if that water starts to get into the boat, that boat will sink to the bottom. So too, as Christians, we are called to live in this world. We are sent into this world. But if the world begins to flood our lives and to take the place of the Lord, then we too will sink. So we do need to hear that message. So as we are sent into this world, we are, there is a sense that in Jesus, we can actually glide through this world, enjoying him and knowing him. And it feels right. And it feels good, and it feels like this is where God has a purpose for me here. But if we begin to let the world in and rule us, then it will sink and destroy us. This is why in verse 15, Jesus prayed to the Father that, he would, that we would be protected from the evil one. The world is the arena of Satan. Satan loves to scheme. He loves to discourage, detract, He loves nothing more than to blind the minds and eyes of unbelievers. He loves nothing more for Christians to talk about any and everything but Christ and Him crucified. He loves to just keep the world blinded. And yet He also hates what we're doing. He hates Christians. He hates the message that we have. He wants nothing more than to keep Christians from thriving in this world. He wants nothing more than to discourage our faith. So our task then is not to withdraw from the world, nor to be confused with the world, but to remain in the world, maintaining our witness through the power of the Spirit. Trusting that Christ is with us. So there's nothing more than Satan would love for us to be afraid of the world, to be afraid of him. To, to pull back from our mission. And when, time, when hard times come, Satan would love nothing than to discourage our faith. Yet we are reminded time and time again, in 1 John, it tells us that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. That we don't have to fear Satan, that we can oppose him, and that, that as he, that we have a better message and a more hopeful message than what he is trying to keep the world's eyes blind to. 1 Peter 5 says this, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And so there is this sense to where when Jesus knew who we needed to be protected from, he knew that we would deal with our own sin this world, but he also knew that there is an enemy in this world, who would love nothing than to devour us. And so we need to resist him. Part of being on mission, it's amazing, this week, as I prepared this message, how much opposition I faced. And I brought things, and I just said, hey, this happened this week. And, and they were just like, man, this is just Satan. This is just this world. They, it is wanting to discourage and, to, and distract you from encouraging the church. We have an enemy. We don't need to fear him. But we need to be mindful of him. We need to be watchful. We need to stand firm. We need to preach the good news. 
And so as Jesus, as we hear his prayer, as we hear his commission to go, that we're sent into the world, then let's talk about what does that exactly look like? What does that mean? This leads to our second point. Well, it means that we turn the world upside down. We turn the world upside down. Acts 17.6 says this, And when they could not find them, so they're looking for Paul and Silas who have been preaching the gospel. When they, these rioters, these people who were upset, they couldn't find them, they dragged Jason. They were at his house. Well, get Jason. And they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Don't you, I love, I mean, these, these are not Christians saying this. They are like, they hate Christianity, they hate the gospel, but they're getting the mission of Christianity exactly right. Turning the world upside down. This world is not right. This world is, has evil and sickness and sin in it. And as Christians, we follow Jesus who was not of this world. And we are sent into this world with this message. And so we are to go forth. And what I hope and trust is that when people come in to our church and when they come into your home, which we'll talk about soon, what they will see is that this is just different. Things are just not the same here. Things are just very, very different than what I see out in the world. And it's not from a place of self-righteousness, but it's from a place of satisfaction and trust and faith that the Lord's way is just better. It is just better. But, so when we think about turning the world upside down, I'm sure we can often think we got to live radical lives. So that means i got to sell everything. I'm going to give up movies. I'm going to relocate to a Bolivian jungle in order to engage in nomadic peoples who've never heard the gospel. That's what I got to do. That's where I'm headed. I'm signing up. I don't agree with that. You can do that and people need to do that, but I don't think that's what we are called to do. Everyone is called to do. I believe with, with that mindset in place, but I also believe this statement is true. Everyone wants to save the world but no one wants to help mom do the dishes. <laughs> Think about that. Everyone wants to save the world, but no one wants to help mom do the dishes. I, just, I, I love that sentence. <laughs> it's just so true. <laughs> I mean, there, there's just something to where we can get behind this grand call to go, and, and I'm going to change the world. I'm going to go do this, and then... Hey, sweetie, can you come help me with the dishes? Oh, no, I can't do that. Sorry. I don't want to do that. You see, you see there's, they're not disconnected. They're not disconnected. It is amazing when you look at, the, at church history, when you look at the history of Christianity, how ordinary Christian faithfulness has brought about incredible gospel advancement. That the way that God has built His kingdom the way that the world was turned upside down, it was by the gospel being preached. It was by people coming into each other's homes, breaking bread, enjoying fellowship, and just proclaiming that message. And guess what? It turned the world upside down. And they prayed. And so I, I just, I want us to feel that, that yes, there is this burden. There is this call. There is this hope. So as Christians, I want us to be ambitious for what God has for the world. But I also want us to think, okay, I want to turn the world upside down, but, but, 
what does that mean for where God has me? What has He called me in my day-to-day, my ordinary, my ordinary life? What does that ordinary faithfulness look like which I can share Christ and I can see the gospel go forth in power? So here are a few suggestions for us. This list is by no means exhaustive. First, pray. 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 As I've been preparing for this message, I've just found myself going back to the amazing fact, guys, Jesus prayed for us. Like he's in, the, he's in the garden and he stops and he prays. And he prays that we would be sent. He prayed to his Father that we would go. And now, all these years later, that prayer is continuing to be answered. Jesus prayed. Jesus had communion that existed with the Father that went back through eternity, always existed. And now we have access through Christ to make our requests known to God. We can pray in faith and confidence and boldness because we know that God hears our prayers. The prayer of a Christian is not an attempt to force God's hand, but but a humble acknowledgement of helpless dependence What we do every time we pray is to confess our own inability. Lord, I can't do this, but you are sovereign. You can. So I'm going to pray. That's what I'm going to do before I do anything. I'm going to pray. I'm going to confess, Lord, I'm not able. I can't do this, but you can. You are able. Your kingdom endures forever. We pray. In 18... In the 1840s, 1850s, America was facing a stock market crash, and it was on the cusp of the Civil War. The country was divided. Things were bleak. But Jeremiah Lanfear, he was a neighborhood missionary to poor immigrants for the North Dutch Church in New York City, began to have a burden concerning conditions in the city and the country. So, On September 23rd, 1857, he launched a weekly noon hour prayer meeting for businessmen in a third floor classroom of the North Dutch Church. No one showed up for the first half hour. I would have left after five minutes. He stayed, and people began to come. Six men straggled in to pray the second half hour. Twenty people came the next week. More than 50 attended the weekly prayer meetings in the following month. By early November, over 200 people were coming to this prayer meeting. And then by the following April, 10,000 people were meeting daily to pray throughout New York City. Now here is what they were praying for. One of the primary focuses at the businessmen prayer meetings was praying for the conversion of specific relatives and friends. Christians put legs to their evangelistic prayers by conversing with their unsaved acquaintances about their need for the Lord, by sharing the gospel, by giving them literature, by inviting them to church. And many non-Christians even attended these prayer meetings. So conservative estimates are that nearly one million individuals in a nation then numbering 30 million were converted to Christ in less than two years. Here, listen to this historian's observation of the revival. The influences of this awakening were felt everywhere in the country. It not only captured the big cities, but also spread through every town, village, country, 
hamlet, its swamps, schools, and colleges, the hearts of men were strangely warmed by a power outpoured in unusual ways. Lacking all fanaticism, there was an unusual unanimity of approval by religious and secular observers with scarcely a critical voice heard anywhere. Oh, for there to be scarcely a critical voice heard anywhere. Do you believe that can happen today? I believe it can. I believe that praying to a sovereign God who has done it before, He can do it again. So spend a few days, spend a few minutes each day praying specifically for the gospel to go forth. Write names down. Pray for the church. Pray for the city. Ask God to bring revival. Revival is not something that we bring about. It's not something that we manufacture. We pray to God that He would bring revival. That, that, that He would through His Spirit, come and that He would change people's hearts. That He would come and that there would be people that would come to a prayer meeting. That we would pray, not only pray, but then we would go and share the gospel. Or that we would share literature. We would invite people into our home so we can talk to them about Christ. Because here's why. We believe that Jesus is better. We faithfully bring the gospel to a world that desperately needs it. And we're not going to be able to do this without praying. May we be a praying people. Next week, we have a worship and prayer night. Come to that prayer meeting. It's one hour. We would love to have more people come than six before the first half hour. (laughs) But But it's more, it's like prayer works. God answers prayer. We, We acknowledge our need for Him. So let us be a people that pray. Next, see people as image bearers. How do you see people? How do you view people? Where do you begin when you look at someone? Our culture today, the world today, wants us to see one another in divisive ways. Surfacy ways. Ways that really have no eternal significance. We, we, there's this lack of engagement. There's this lack of charity. There's this lack of getting to know someone that, are, that we live in. And it is amazing what happens when you see someone first and foremost as created in the image of God. C.S. Lewis said that you never meet a mere mortal. Everyone we meet is immortal. Everyone that we meet has a soul. Everyone that we meet is either going to spend eternity in heaven with God or eternity in hell under his wrath. We never meet a mere mortal. See people created in the image of God. Don't let social media or this world dictate how you view others. Thirdly, practice hospitality. The home in America has become more of a place where we store stuff, sleep, eat, and then go out again. That's what the home is now. It's how we use our homes. It's amazing to watch. You can drive into the neighborhood. Probably you drive in, you wave to your neighbor, you go into your garage, never to see one another again. That's like your only time is when you're driving in. As Christians, let's fight against this. Let's, the home is not just a storage area. It's an outpost. It's where we bring people in. We, we get to know them. We invite them for a meal. This is what Jesus did. He came eating and drinking 
Just as he sent us, he himself was sent. And what he did is that he would get to know people. And as he conversed with someone, he would listen. And as he listened to them, then he began to ask them questions based on where they were and based on how they answered that, then he was eventually able to share the gospel. He was able to tell them of the good news. He was able to reveal himself and to show himself to people. Let's have people in our homes. Let's not minimize this role. For those, for those of you who are parents with kids, don't dismiss your children. Share the gospel with your kids. Pray for your kids. Have times where you are sharing truth with them and reading God's word. And don't get so lost in sharing the gospel with everyone else that you don't miss those who are so close to you. Those ones that God has entrusted to you. May you hold them closely and may you pray for them and may you share with them this good news about Jesus Christ. As Rosaria Butterfield said, God never gets the address wrong. So again, why, does, why did God send you to your home or your apartment or your dorm or your school, whatever it may be? Why are you there? What is Jesus? When he says, I'm sending you, what does that sending look like? Fourthly, let's conform our lives to Christ. Sanctification is always connected with mission in the Gospel of John. So when John writes, when Jesus prayed, sanctify them in your truth, your word is truth, what Jesus is thinking is this is part of the mission. So as, as you're being sanctified and made more and more like Jesus, as you're pursuing holiness, it's part of the mission. It's part of what you're called to do. We're not just meant to believe truth. We're supposed to embody it. We're supposed to apply it. We're supposed to, it's supposed to be seen in our lives. So as, as we apply God's word, as we, as we are standing on truth, then what that does is that enables us for people to look at our lives and see something different. They get to see a world and a life that looks very different from the world that they're living in. Jesus came into the world and was hated, but he realized he is nothing like the world. This didn't surprise him. Jesus came and he was obeying. What was, what was Jesus's food? My food is to do the will of him who sent me. So he came and he lived a certain way and he was rejected for it. But he said, this is why I came. This is why I was sent. I wasn't sent into the world so that the world would love me. I was sent into the world to rescue the world. Right? That's why we're sent. We're not sent into the world so the world will like us. We're sent into the world so that we can share the gospel. So that we can actually share there's a better way. The way that we turn the world upside down is to say, hey, this thing is wrong. The whole, your whole way of thinking is wrong. There's actually a God. You're not a God. There's actually a way to live that is right and according with him. And he's a holy God and you've sinned against him. And, and, you're gonna, and, and you die because of that sin. But guess what? He, this God sent his own son to live and die and rose again from the dead. And he's coming back. And this is good news. And you can have it by faith. That's what we have. That's what we have. That's why we, we, that's why we want to love God and love his word. That's why we want to look like Jesus. I want people to come to me and be like, hey, why are you so different? I don't want people to come and say, hey, why do you look like me? Like, I, I just, I want people to see the world. I want the world to see that there is a distinctness. It doesn't mean that this is self-righteous. It doesn't mean that we have it better. It just means that Jesus is better. It means that we love him and we live for him. He is our treasure. 
We want to persuade the world with the gospel. What we have is not the 1999 nonstick pan that Zach got suckered into buying. <laughs> That's not what we have to offer people. What we have to offer people is Jesus Christ, Savior of the world, eternal life with Him. And lastly, I would encourage you to share the gospel. Make sure you share the gospel. How are people to hear this message unless someone preaches? Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And I think as you share the gospel, you will be surprised at God's power. I was at a um, summer retreat. I would go every summer with a campus ministry. There, we would go on the beach and share the gospel with people. And uh, that was a lot of fun. People on vacation, hey, you want to talk about Jesus? No, not with you. Um, but there was a girl at the retreat, and uh, she was sharing the gospel. And she was with someone sharing the gospel. And as she was sharing the gospel and listening to her friend share the gospel, she realized she didn't know the gospel and that she was not a Christian and became a Christian. And so that, it, the gospel is the power of God. People think, we think we know the gospel. We think, oh, surely they're a Christian. Don't assume that. The gospel's powerful. People need to hear the message of salvation. And then lastly, let's live here but not belong here. Jesus describes his followers in this way in John 17. They're not of the world just as I'm not of the world. So we live in this world but we don't belong to it. This is not our home. And the most amazing and compelling examples of those who have truly treasured Christ are those who have lived this life with a certainty that this life is not the end-all, be-all. And it's always God's kindness when you get to rub shoulders with people who live this way. And I was given this gift to be with my friend Brendan Jap. He died a little over a year ago after battling cancer for four years. And in those four years, I was able to see a man who treasured Christ and who lived here, but he didn't belong here. It, this was not his home. And, and he lived with certainty. He knew where he was going. He knew why God had him here. And he spent every day not focused on himself, not focused on losing ability to do things, not losing his strength, not his sickness, not, not where this road is going. But he, he, he knew, I'm going to heaven. And what that did for him here is that he shared the gospel. He talked about eternity. To be with him was to try to get him to shut up, to stop talking about Jesus at times. He, that's what he loved. And that's what we all should love. This man, the first 10 years I knew Brendan, it was a lot about Brendan. The last five years I was with him, it was all about Christ. And, and that's what he wanted. And, and, and once he realized this is not home, when he realized this is not, this is not what I'm created for, then he, what, what did he do? He began to live. He was sent. He heard that commission and he went. And he finished the race well. And now what I have is I have an example. I have memories. I have conversations. Not so much that make me just want to praise Brendan. Brendan made me love my Savior. Made me want to yearn for heaven and for eternity. It was said of Richard Sibbs, heaven was in him before he was in heaven. I want that to be said of me. That... My friend Brendan, heaven was in him before he was in heaven. And that, that's available for all of us. That's available for each and every one of us. That we can live in such a way to where heaven is a reality that we live with, that we long for. It's, what, it's, where, we're, it's where we're headed. 
So this is how we should live. Our hearts and our minds are set on Christ. As, as Colossians 3 said, let's set our minds on things that are above, not on things of this earth. I love what Hebrews 11 says. It said, these all died in faith. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. So when we live for heaven, this frees us. When, when Jesus becomes our treasure and we're living for heaven. That doesn't mean that then we become no earthly good. It actually means that we have a lot for this world. It means that we have something to offer them. It means that this world isn't it. That we can be spent and spend ourselves for the kingdom of God because this is not home. It's not where we're going. And guess what? God not only sends us, but he says that when we get to heaven, we will have a reward. Can you imagine that? God is the one who gives us this mission. He's the one that gives us new life, but he's the one that says, I will reward you. I will reward your faith. I will reward your mission. I will reward you when people curse you and persecute you. Great is your reward in heaven. I want to live each day. I want to spend each moment trusting and believing that that is true. I want to live in such a way that displays to a watching world that we know that Christ is our life, that perfection and glory will be ours when he returns. As Mike said, when Jesus rose from the grave, when, in light of the resurrection, what does that mean? That means that we be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. It means that we read Revelation 21 and, and we meditate there. And we remember that th this is where we're going. That this world is not the end. This life is not the end. But where are we going? We are going to be with Christ. So listen to these words with that in mind. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city. New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from, this, from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And God's people say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, you say that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. I pray we would be those laborers, that as we go, we would faithfully bring the gospel to a world that desperately needs it. That we would depend not in our own strength or wisdom, but that we would depend on your Spirit. And thank you for the hope that we have, that death has lost its sting, that heaven is real, that Christ, you're coming again in glory. 
In Jesus' name, amen. 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 You've been listening to a message given by Jake Simmons during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.